Specialty Story, session number 190. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialties. This week is no different. I'm going to talk to a neurocritical care physician about his specialty, why he joined it, what he loves about it, what he doesn't like about it, and so much more. It was great talking to someone who's working in Gainesville, Florida, as you know, or maybe not know, I am a Gator. So it's fun to speak to Dr. Mark Bobby, a neurocritical care physician. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Bobby first became interested in neurology and neurocritical care. All right, absolutely. So I'll start with the background of what is neurocritical care. So it's a specialty that deals with the management of acute neurological and neurosurgical emergency. So any patient with severe neurological disorder, severe seizure, massive ischemic stroke, severe brain trauma, brain infection that require life support. It is a hybrid subset of both neurology, neurosurgery, and and critical care medicine and surgical critical care. It became very evident to me throughout my second or third year of neurology residency that really the acute part of neurology intrigues me, interests me. Those patients can be very challenging to manage, very difficult to manage, but also can be very rewarding when you can make a difference in those patient outcome. I became very clear set on pursuing the neurocritical care. Subsequently, I applied for fellowship training, which is additional subspecialty training after residency, where I pursued two years of neurocritical care training at Duke University Hospital. And then after my fellowship training, moved to University of Florida as my first job after uh, a long phase of medical training, right? medical school residency and fellowships. So I moved to Gainesville as a faculty. And a year later, I established the Neurocritical Care Fellowship Program, where we now train future specialists in neurocritical care. Very nice. The, the pinnacle of the academic world in Gainesville, Florida, I, I will say. Uh, my, my wife interviewed for the neurology residency there way back, way back when. Uh, that's exciting. So what, what got you interested in neurology to begin with? Yeah, so same. I mean, during med school, as part of uh, the curriculum, we do rotate through the different uh, medical subspecialty. And I would say throughout the end of my first year, during the basic science phase of uh, medical school, I became really fascinated with the brain, brain and mind. Actually, the course was called Brain and Mind at Cornell back then. Um, it became very clear to me that this is probably the specialty I want to go through. And then further throughout the second and third year, uh, as we started rotating to the wards, seeing the neurological disease and, and show, seeing all the advances that are happening in the field of neurology, again, became very intrigued that neurology is the field that I want to pursue as a residence nice. and then as a career. Yeah. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good neurointensivist? Neurointensivist. So definitely neurointensive is a little bit different than general neurology. So, you know, general neurology, there's some odd patients, some inpatient, epilepsy, headache, different subspecialty. But with neurocritical care, things are very fast paced. You have to make very quick decision. With outpatient neurology, for example, you have the luxury of time and then that slower pace. But with neurocritical care, you have to be decisive. You have to be very firm. You practice that is very clear evidence-based and also have to be very collaborative. We work very closely with neurosurgeon, work very closely with stroke neurologist, with trauma surgeon, 
And so again, excellent communication skill, fast-paced environment, dealing with high QA setting. And then, of course, self-care for you as an intensivist is very important. You put a lot of hours, you deal with very sick patients. So it's very important that there is that period of time where you're able to self-care for yourself, uh, recharge kind of your own battery. So then when you go back on service, taking care of those six patients, you're able to deliver back because you're well taken care of in the first place. Yeah. For the neurology residents who are rotating through the neurocritical care rotation during their residency, what are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that they have about neurocritical care? Yeah. So some of the things actually I heard it directly from residents. Um, some of them said, well, we want to pursue neurocritical care because it's looked like it's easy. You're just gonna do a week <laughs> on and then get 10 day, 10 day off and so forth. Most settings, it's not like that. Sure, you may do a week on, but then in your week off or your two weeks off, you're not absolutely off. I mean, here in an academic setting, you're pursuing research, you're pursuing education, pursuing a lot of other administrative duties. So it's not just pursuing such field because of a lifestyle, it's really pursuing that field because you committed to that practice, you cherish the mom- moments you spend with your patient, especially you, you, you feel that you can give back from your skill set to take care of those very sick patients. Other misconception I have seen a lot was not just resident, but even other physician specialists from other specialties is that culture of nihilism, that patient with neurological injuries, um, the kind of like goner from the get-go or end-of-life care early on. So we have to be really careful not to have preformed misconception as it determined as it comes to prognosis early on in the course of patient disease, because there are a lot of variables, there are a lot of unknown. We know there is a lot of advance in healthcare, how to take care of those patients with neurological uh, resuscitation and, and different new neurosurgical technique on how we treat a lot of the other neuro- neurological neurosurgical emergencies. So the key I always teach our resident fellows in the first few days of a neurological emergency, take a step back, evaluate the situation. And then form a decision-making that based on objective facts, on data, not just based on opinions. What is the, the, some students listening to this or residents listening to this, they like the investigation, trying to figure out what's going on. As, as a neurointensivist, is there that sort of kind of Sherlock Holmesing trying to figure out what's going on? Or do you know, look, it's a stroke. Yeah. Now we just need to wait and, and right. adjust as needed. Or what, what does that look like? So to a better extent, we already know what's going on. It's a clear-cut neurological emergency. Occasionally, it's, it's still a little bit ambiguous. But for the most part, you, we already know very clear patients suffer such X or Y or Z neurological or neurosurgical emergency. We know what's going on. So now it's really dealing with the aftermath. We're treating the secondary complication, be it brain swelling, severe seizure, respiratory failure, cardiac dysfunction that is related to a brain injury. So we already know what happened, but we're dealing with the secondary complication. And as I mentioned, occasionally there are some diseases that are a little bit unclear and we have to do a little bit more dig in or background search. Yeah, I, I'm assuming some seizures that are triggered by encephalitis. Is it herpes? Is it something else that, that's a little more questionable? Well, not, not always, actually. That's not as difficult because even for seizure, is it triggered by a virus, by a bacteria or a fungus or autoimmune? That's clear cut. It becomes more like the really unusual autoimmune or perineoplastic disorder. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the newer disorders. But again, for the most part, we, we're now able to figure out what caused a stroke or what caused an aneurysm. For example, in the case of brain trauma, it's very clear cut. We know we have a history of trauma. Yeah. And then we know that now the patient has secondary complication related to their severe brain injury. They're not able to breathe on their own or their cardiac function 
is depressed because they have a severe brain injury that affected their heart function and so forth. So we already have an answer, but now how do we manage the secondary complication? That's something we deal very frequently with in neurocritical care. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you? Yeah. So right now you see me, I'm in my scrubs. Yeah. So in our practice, um, when I'm on call, I'm, on, I'm responsible for the NeuroICU 24 7. Um, we do alternate to do have a partner that rotates with me throughout the week. So one day I'll do a call, the next day he or she would, would do that call. Typically, we're gonna, we'll come to the NeuroICU around between six and seven in the morning. Our team work in day and night shift, 12 hour shift. We break them down. So we have advanced practice provider, residents, and fellows. So that window between six and six thirty in the morning is when the night team uh, hand off patient care to the day team or vice versa. So they will tell the team what happened overnight event or new admission. We do that handoff transition of care. The attending would be there overseeing that process of handoff, ensuring that the flow of information is smooth and is accurate. And then the early morning, the first two hours after the handoff between seven and nine in the morning, the team, so the resident, the fellow, the advanced practice provider, will pre-round on their individual patients. They will see their patients. They will come up with decision-making. And then between nine and noon, nine or 12, we do have multiple rounds to the attending, the fellow, the resident, the advanced practice provider, nutritionist, pharmacist, respiratory therapist, nurses, so a big team will round, we present patient as extent, um, multi-experiment setting. So the nurse will do their part, will tell us specific overnight event, nursing concern, line issue, et cetera. Then the team of phys- physician or clinician will do their medical decision-making in a critical care aspect. So we'll talk about neurological aspects, neurological diagnosis or issues, what we do in treatment-wise, respiratory issues, uh, renal issues, infectious issues, et cetera. It takes us about three to four hours to go through between 10 to 12 patients or 14 patients. Afternoons, any procedure that needs to be done, we'll do them. Those are if, if, if those procedures can be um, delayed toward the afternoon. If any procedure come emergently that do need to happen earlier in the morning, of course, we'll do them emergently in between rounds. And then again, afternoon, uh, typically we'll have didactic um, uh, uh, like a group conference or, or a, a PowerPoint presentation or grand rounds, a uh, series of didactic for learners. And then again, rest of the after- afternoon, any new patient admission, um, any new patient uh, pertinent related issue that happened, we'll address it. And then around between six and seven, it's going to be now the handoff from the day team to the night team. In between, the attending is responsible for the oversight of the team. So while the attending may physically be present for 12, 13, 14 hours, if emergency happen overnight, the attending will get will go back to the hospital and then support the, the uh, team that is physically present on the premise of the ICU and addressing whatever medical emergency needs to be done. Now you, you mentioned procedures. I think a lot of people probably don't think about neurology in, 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 as a procedure-heavy field. What types of procedures are you doing? Absolutely. So in neurocritical care, we do pretty much all the standard critical care procedure. So that include intubation, uh, placing a, a life support breathing tube uh, for patient, uh, fiber optic bronchoscopy, that means like going to the camera through a breathing tube to clean up the lungs if needed, or take a sample. Uh, external ventricular drain, those are performed by our neurosurgeon. Typically, a lot of neurointensive results perform them. So that's placing drain in the brain when brain pressure builds up. Uh, we place those drain. Uh, EEG or electroencephalogram interpretation, uh, so brainwave recording, transcranial Doppler, cardiac ultrasound, uh, chest tube placement, central venous catheter placement, arterial line placement, lumbar puncture. So those are the very common procedure that we do. Yeah, interesting. 
So you mentioned call and and what that looks like. Uh, very busy time when you're on. Do you feel like as a, a neurocritical care doc that you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you have to find your own balance. I do a lot of outdoors. I'm an avid spear fisherman. I do a lot of uh, free diving, spear fishing, kite surfing. And then on time where I have longer stretch off, I'll travel out of state. I like mountain. I like to do hiking, skiing in the right season. And so I'm an avid outdoorsman. I have two little kids. I have a five-year-old and eight-year-old. So again, I cherish my free time, spending it with the family, going around. And a lot of trips are built around now family time. Yeah, very fun. Well, I'm in Colorado, so lots of yep. lots of good mountains and skiing out here. Um, you, you mentioned your uh, you you run the fellowship there now for neurocritical care. What do you look for in in applicants to the neurocritical care program? Absolutely. So I run the fellowship, but also I co-run the residency because I'm the associate residency director for neurology. Yeah. So with fellow applicants, which right now we are wrapping up our interview season for neurocritical care, we look at a few things like what distinguish fellow applicant. We want fellows that are committed to the profession, committed to the field. As I said, it's a pretty intense field. So it takes a lot of interpersonal commitment to the specialty, to the field. We like fellows that are also motivated for their self-learning. Uh, what I mean by that, there is ever-evolving medical knowledge before we know how to manage those neurological emergencies. So while we provide didactic, we provide lecture and so forth. Um, there is the intrinsic drive to learn uh, that comes uh, intrinsically that we cannot really teach. And then uh, resilience is really important. What I mean by resilience, uh, patients that we see are very sick and it can be very taxing at the same time, but also rewarding. So it's really important and fellows or any practitioner in the field of neurofrequent care build that resilience because we know that burnout in that specialty tends to run very high. If you look at any of the critical care specialty and surgical, specialized surgical specialty, burnout is really high. And specifically in neurology and critical care, burnout is among the highest among all other subspecialties. Yeah, yep. What does the, the training path look like for residency and then fellowship? How, how long does that typically take and what does the fellowship years look like? Absolutely. So residency, someone uh, is training or has trained in neurology, is that it's four-year, four-year of training. Uh, for uh, neurology residency training, they do the first year as medicine rotation, and then the next three years as neurology and neurology subspecialty rotation. For neurocritical care, it really depends on what uh, uh, pathway through residency the applicant comes from. So we do take candidates from neurology. We do take candidates from anesthesiology, from neurosurgery, internal medicine, and anesthesiology, or those who've completed previously critical care specialty training. So if uh, a candidate has completed neurology, internal medicine, or anesthesiology, it's a two-year duration of training. If a candidate has previously completed neurosurgery, so neurosurgery specialty is six-year at least, most programs are seven-year, or if someone has uh, completed critical care subspecialty training, the neurocritical care training is one year. Hmm. And we do have fellows uh, or current fellow, or those who graduated who've gone through either path, so we've had, well, the majority of neurocritical care fellows and, and practitioner are of neurology background, majority by about 40%, 45, about 20, 25% are of internal medicine background, 10, 15% anesthesiology background, 5, 10% emergency medicine background, and 5, 10% neurosurgery background. In our program, we've had those who were of internal medicine background, uh, emergency medicine, and those who completed critical care training. For the osteopathic student or resident listening to this, what do they need to do to potentially overcome any negative bias? 
Yeah, great point. So I will speak specifically from our program-wise. We do not distinguish DO versus MD, allopathic versus osteopathic. We do have a holistic approach in our program, how we look at applicants. We look at all factor together. We will look at letter of recommendation. We'll look at extracurricular um, commitment to the profession overall. So if someone is of medicine, have they uh, gone to society meeting, et cetera, someone of neurology, likewise, did they go to society meeting? We look at, as I say, letter of recommendation. We look at USMLE score or board or COMLEX score. So all um, combined together. And then, of course, the interview process, we look at it. So we factor all of those in together. We do also look at the fact if an individual is of underrepresented a minority or, or minority background, we do give um, a positive weight to that, uh, given that we do know there is a disadvantage associated with underrepresented minority and admission to med school and so forth. So we look at that very closely and we weigh in all those factors together in our selection process. We do have a committee uh, of faculty who interview uh, prospective fellows. And then after the interview season, after we wrapped up, we meet again collectively, we go through the file of each candidate and, and accordingly, we, we submit our rank list. Yeah. The Everything you've talked about, it sounds like neurocritical care is very much a hospital-based, potentially more weighted towards academic, big academic institutions. For someone who may be interested in neurocritical care but wants to be out in a community, maybe a smaller hospital, is there are, are there job opportunities for that type of student? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, as you said, so neurocritical care is, is inpatient as a specialty. It's really inpatient, as the name implies, basically neurological and neurosurgical intensive care emergencies. So you need an intensive care setting. Now, how the model is, is um, out there can be very varied by institution, by the platform, the infrastructure. Well, they're probably in the low hundred for academic setting uh, in the United States that, that have neurointensive care units. There are at least, I would say, three to four times that amount uh, of um, places that do offer uh, or have neurointensive care units in community or hospital employed setting. Uh, so there are like very, very uh, model out there. Some units are what we call closed model. So closed model mean that the patient would be admitted under uh, the neurointensivists and the neurointensivists kind of manages everything. Open model mean that the patient would be admitted under a neurosurgeon or a stroke neurologist or role is more of a consultant to support the other team in managing uh, secondary complication, like airway complication, cardiovascular complication, hemodynamic, and, and so forth. Yeah. So again, there are very, varied models out there in the community. Job market is very diverse as well. Um, I would say there is probably a big shortage of neurointensivists in the community out there. My estimate is that it would take at least five to seven years to saturate the field because it's a relatively young field. It's yeah. really started in mid 2000 where neurocritical care specialty became more widely recognized. And in the early 2010, when it became uh, much more recognized. Yeah. yeah. Do you see uh, neurointensivists potentially doing a little bit more uh, telehealth consulting with, with hospitals that are maybe out in more rural areas? Patients coming in with yeah. strokes and, and doing like stroke call and stuff like that. Is that a neurointensivist doing that? No, absolutely. So that's very common where uh, especially a large institution that have um, spoken hub model of outreach to smaller hospitals. Spoken hub model, what it means is that you have like a major academic center or a large hospital that is contracted with smaller regional hospital or rural hospital. And then in practice of resource allocation, since obviously 
the major hub hospital may not be able to admit everyone from outside hospital, as well they fill in their bed. Uh, they have their individual uh, physician specialist act as tele or perform telehealth consultation to whatever uh, scope of practice or expertise they're on. Uh, we do perform that uh, at the University of Florida, not neurotrica care per se, but neurology or telestroke. Uh, for example, our uh, stroke physician or neurologist physician will take a phone call from outside hospital. They will offer some guidance. And if they need further support backup, they will loop us in as intensivists. Many other hospitals have instituted that as well. Now, whether it's a stroke neurologist, a general neurologist, uh, or neurointensity that render teleconsultation, that's um, whatever hospital system come up with their model. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before becoming a neurointensivist? Oh, what I wish. Um, <laughs> I mean, I always knew it's a great specialty. It's it's uh, challenging. It's demanding. It, it puts a lot of uh, both physical and intellectual tasks on the individual. And what I mean by physical tasks, you are really standing like physically, you're working 12 hours or 14 hours. It's not like as a neurologist, you're sitting in a chair and then relaxing like actual uh, physical demand and, and doing the procedure as well takes certain uh, manual skill set and physical skill set. And also intellectually, you have to be on top of your knowledge. There is ever-changing like guideline uh, protocols, etc. So you have to be on top of your knowledge. But as, I mean, as I said, as much as it's taxing, it's also very rewarding as a specialty. What do you like the most about it? Um, really the deep connection you form with patient and their family. Um, and having the honor, the privilege to take care of the sickest of the sickest in the hospital, where now you're given that privilege, that honor of managing neurological emergency, neurological catastrophes. Basically, it's up to you how you manage them. So that's truly an honor and a privilege. It's extremely rewarding to see how we can make a difference to the patients uh, in terms of their outcome. You, see, you get patients who are very sick, you treat them, and you know you directly made an impact in their life. And probably not just life, but people around them. So that's extremely rewarding. The other part of uh, very rewarding is it's training future specialists in that field. When we train our fellows, our residents, our advanced practice provider, and seeing that they likely branch out down the road, go to other hospitals, start perhaps their own program, that also extremely rewarding. What do you like the least? What I like the least. Let's see. Now, I don't have really anything in particular <laughs> that I dislike, I would say. Let me see. Dislike, yeah. No, I mean, really nothing in particular. I, I can't come up with anything that I don't like or dislike. Yeah. I'm trying really hard to think it's true. <laughs> like, let let me ask you, because you're in a, yeah. a critical care field, how much yeah. are you fighting with insurance companies? Like what, what other physicians are doing? Or, or is that just oh, not, not really all. part I, of I your role? I don't even know what, what goes in the background. I'm not involved in that with yeah. insurance company. So the way most models are based on RVUs, and, and most um, practitioner salary is also based around RBU. So you have a set number, patient care, you will see it and so forth. But from my end, I'm not involved at all in any pre-auth or whatsoever. I mean, patient comes through the emergency department. I don't even know, are they insured or not? Or are they private payer? That's irrelevant to me. I take care of them. I submit the daily RBUs, the medical record, and then the hospital administration take care of the rest. I get my paycheck regardless whether they're insured or uninsured it still happens because i'm rendering a service so again it's for me it's irrelevant in terms of practice of what i do yeah. what insurance that patient have yeah do you see any major changes coming to the fields whether it's technology or or uh, medications anything yeah. like that yeah so a lot of changes are happening in the field changing the form that we're much more technologically advanced than what we're doing a lot of the endovascular procedure 
So historically, several years ago, for a lot of procedure, patient needed to go through a major brain surgery. So take out the skull, take out the skull, retract brain tissue, address whatever brain issues there. So now a lot of what we do is through uh, endovascular approach. So our surgeon would go directly through the blood vessel, deploy stents, blood diverter, open up blood vessels uh, that are blocked, uh, put in stent and carotid, uh, um, obliterate aneurysm, et cetera. So a lot of it is done endovascularly right now. So that's one major change that's happening. Another change in regard of how we train neurocritical care that's happening, the accreditation body in neurocritical care is transitioning from the United Council of Neurological Subspecialty, or what we call UCNS, to ACGME, the accreditation uh, for graduate, American accreditation for graduate medical uh, education. So that's shifting as well. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a neurointensivist? Yeah, absolutely. I would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Any well, without, hesita- without hesitation. <laughs> That's yeah. good. Any yeah. last words of wisdom for the student or resident listening to this now interested in neurocritical care? I mean, as I said, it's a great field. It's uh, very distinct from all the other fields of neurology. As it's, it's more of a hybrid between neurosurgery, acute care neurology, and stroke neurology, and critical care medicine. We're in a unique position that there are no other field that's similar to that. It's really intense. takes a lot of work, a lot of dedication but it's very rewarding as well. Um, it's very academic, very intellectually stimulating. Um, and again, we take care of a lot of sick patients, but the most rewarding part, seeing how impact or positive impact we can make uh, toward patient and their family, and of course, training the future generation of, of specialists. So we take a special personality and special skill to be a successful neurointensivist. What if you want to be a, a neurointensivist and wear a bow tie still and, and hold that strong neurology connection with bow ties. Yeah, so it's going to be challenging <laughs> because you see I'm wearing scrub. The bow tie and, and ties will not work in the neuro ICU. The number one, why a bow tie Dirty. or a tie will not work because of risk of contam- cross-contamination with patient as you're addressing. So you're really going to wear like scrub of surgical attire. But also there is blood and there is splash that can happen. Yep. A few hours ago, I had some blood splash on me. I had to change my scrub. And that's the nature of the profession or what we do. The bag of tool as a neurologist, while it's great if we're performing outpatient or evaluating a patient with cognitive decline or et cetera, for neurocritical care practice, it's much less relevant to have this, this specialized uh, tool for the most part. It's not relevant because as I said, already we know what the diagnosis. We know it's a large, massive ischemic stroke. We know it's a large, massive trauma to the brain or severe brain infection to the brain. So that's already well known. But what we're addressing here are the secondary or the severe other systemic complication as a result of a neurological or neurosurgical emergency. Yeah. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Mark Bobby, a neurointensivist specializing in neurocritical care, talking about his specialty. Hopefully this was helpful for you if you're interested in neurology, if you like more critical care type care, and you are interested in neurology, then maybe neurocritical care is right for you. I hope this was helpful. Don't forget to subscribe, share this with friends, advisors, classmates, whoever else to let them know about specialty stories. Don't forget to check out eShadowing where we do live specialty stories basically for shadowing for students every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Again, that's eshadowing.com. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.
This is MedEd Media.